Well, welcome to episode 125 of The Professor and the Hack. It's been a little while between drinks. Uh, I am the Hack, Hugh Remington, and with me, the Professor Peter Van Onselen. G'day, Pete. G'day, Hugh. Yeah, it has been a while. We, we had the election and it was busy as, and then the aftermath was not that much different, but uh, I'm not sure if you got a break, but I've had a long extended break, which has been great. A chance to get overseas for the first time since the pandemic briefly, but also just relax and in between that uh, doing a, a bit of work on a book on Albanese's win just titled The Victory. Yeah, I was going to say you you can't fool me you don't have a break. <laughs> well, it feels like a break. It's a, a break from the daily news. It's actually quite interesting uh, going through the process of, you know, obviously paying so much attention like we have to in our roles to the daily news and then all of a sudden yes, you know, busily working away on the book about what happened during the campaign and in the 3 years before that but not really paying attention to the daily news. Far from it, actually. If anything, at best, switching on once a week to find out what's going on. It gives you that sense of, I think, how most people feel about politics. You know, like they're largely disengaged, but they engage when it either matters to them or when it gets closer to polling day to have a bit of a closer look. It, it felt a bit like that because I had friends of mine who just assume I'm immersed in politics when I'd talk to them, say, oh, what did you think of X or what did you think of Y? And I was genuinely sitting there saying, I have no idea what you're talking about because I've, I've switched off. So just, just for a moment, just for a moment, you moved outside the Canberra bubble. Yeah, exactly. And it's a, it's a funny feeling when somebody asks for your opinion on something that they think is significant. And in your world at that point in time, it's so insignificant that you don't even know what it is. Uh, you haven't even heard you know, the briefest of stories on it or seen a headline on it because you're, you're that disengaged. And I wonder if, you know, it just makes me reflect, I guess, on if lots of voters are like that, you know, no criticism, but they're busy in their daily lives. If that's the way they view politics, it's an interesting thing, isn't it, that we then need their judgment in a democracy and there's, there's no better alternative, but we need their judgment in a democracy when they do choose to switch on. And then all the moving parts attached to that, you know, the way parties try to get their attention, the way they try to appeal or they try to make the other mob look bad so that they switch to them instead. Having a compulsory voting system, which I'm massively in favour of, I'm sure you are as well, Hugh, so that you don't have people who are already disengaged entirely disenfranchised as well. It's, it's just, look, it's just interesting uh, not, not to be following it so closely. It gives you a better perspective. Well, one of the things that we've seen just as Parliament resumes is that they've got straight back into it and the issues that are being spoken about are, for the most part, substantially of interest, I think, mm. because we're seeing the economic indicators heading south at a rapid rate. We're seeing, as we heard from the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, inflation set to hit 7.75%. He came in with that argument, Albanese, everything's going up except your wages, but it's now absolutely clear that wages can't stay up with that. Yeah, well, even just on what the Treasurer says, you know, it's, I mean, look, you know, they, they will make their applications to fair work about the minimum wage. Uh, and then that obviously has a certain amount of flow on effects. But on their projections, real wages won't start to go up until 2024 at the earliest, which basically means that at a time of high inflation, where interest rates are probably going up as well for anyone that's got a home loan uh, or any sort of loan for that matter. But at a time where you know, you've got that burden on cost of living with interest rate rises and you've got the general cost of living increase that high inflation causes when it comes to you know, goods that we purchase every day, in that environment, people's wages are not going to match that or not even come close to matching it, according to the forecast, which means that people are taking a real wage cut. And look, there's not a huge amount government can do about it, but it is 
nonetheless the case, isn't it, that Labor campaigned on this notion that they will do something about that. What that will look like or could look like, who knows, but even on their own forecast, it'll take years. Well, well, they could they could do something. Yeah, I mean, they could do something if they wanted to, and it's significant that they don't want to, and that is they could jawbone up the economy and the expectations of wage rises that match inflation. It'd be potentially disastrous for the economy. Uh, business would hate it. All kinds of things would go bad. But it is significant that they're not doing that, given that this was a you know just a few weeks and months ago, real wage growth was supposed to be at the heart of their argument. And their argument also goes that it was the coalition is the one that's had as part of its economic structure, the suppression of workers' wages, and that they were going to be different. Yeah. And, and, and looking at this week of parliament, it's interesting because obviously Labor is doing what you would expect them to do. And they're pointing out that, you know, after, after a lost decade of, of coalition government, blame them, don't blame us. Also look at international factors. Nothing untrue about those realities, but you wonder how long politically they'll be able to peg to that before people start to say, well, hang on a second, you said X, uh, you could do Y and you're doing neither or not sufficiently. Their argument is that the budget is already constrained and weighed down by a trillion dollars worth of debt. Uh, so that, that answers any calls for higher public sector wages potentially. But they also would argue, no doubt, that you know when you start putting wages up, that can have its own inflationary impact and it becomes a wages price Spiral, we saw that in the 1970s, so that, that'll be one of their arguments as well. But look, one thing I want to say is this, and, and I, I can't imagine too many people would disagree, which leads to the question of why won't Labor do something about this beyond, if you like, fiscal belt tightening. Okay, fine. They've advocated for fair work to put the minimum wage up. Presumably, they'll do that again at some point. Uh, they talk about you know cost of living pressures. What about people on Newstart? Oh my God, $46 a day in an inflationary environment when it's already below what should be considered a living wage. There's no talk about Newstart going up at all. Uh, and, and this is the quotient of society that will suffer the most from the inflationary impact that we're going to see this year, next year, and the year after that. Yet it's not even remotely on the agenda. And this is a Labor government, Hugh. This is Anthony Albanese whose mother was in public housing, reliant on a disability pension, and has talked the talk about no one being left behind. I, for one, and I'm a fiscal conservative for the most part, but I, for one, would be entirely comfortable about throwing some extra debt on the pile that is already there to be able to create an increase to the new start allowance. I would also be happy, if that's not acceptable, to put taxes up to do so or to find other cuts to do so. But this is a quote of society that needs government help more than any other in a time of crisis of high inflation, and they're not getting it. And it's a well-made point. The point needs to be made that there's a distinction between people on the pension and people on Newstart, because pensions get an automatic CPI increase. So pensioners will be seeing rises twice yearly, I think it is, based on CPI, but that doesn't flow through to Newstart. Different calculation, exactly right. So pensioners actually, I mean, look, they're not getting ahead, obviously, because it just simply essentially matches inflation, but they are nonetheless uh, at least keeping up with it. But for Newstart, the calculation's a little different. They'll get a small something, but in real terms, their life lives will be getting harder, not easier, over the course of the next couple of years without an increase. So two things which seem like immediate broken promises which the opposition is looking to have a crack at. One is that uh, the promise that real wage growth will happen under Labor 
is at best a promise deferred. Charts have come out indicating that uh, maybe by the end of next year and in 2024, real wages might catch up. With um, By that stage, it's presumed that inflation, the big monster, will be brought back under control. You know, we'll wait to see how that goes. But the other one is electricity prices, because they're going up. And uh, Labor had promised that electricity prices would come off under them. Mm. Uh, that's not the experience. There's a whole bunch of factors in that. But you can see that this is one of the few areas in which uh, you can see the opposition seeking to, I suppose, blood the nose of the government. And it is a real, goes to your people on Newstart, goes to everyone else, goes to small business. Power prices are going up and it's painful. It's very hard to bring under control. Yeah. And, and that's one of the things, again, when you talk about the most disadvantaged people, in an inflationary environment, prices are going up writ large, but some are going up higher than others. And in the current environment, the price increases in, if you like, essential goods or essential products is higher than you know some other products, for example. So that only makes it more difficult for people on a pension, on new start, on a low income, on a, in a part-time job, because the, the, the products that they can't avoid, if you like, to go about their daily lives as part of fiscal belt tightening are going up. So therefore, it's, 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 it, it elongates or it worsens the problem for them. But yeah, the, look, the government's got a lot on its plate. You know, a new government, uh, you know, you know, he's a little interesting side fact for you, Hugh. Did you know this? Anthony Albanese didn't know this until I put it to him in one of the interviews for the book. He is the oldest opposition leader to win an election to come into the prime ministership in Australian political history. How old is he? He's only 59. No one has won from opposition into government to become prime minister at an older age than that. Malcolm Turnbull was older than that, but of course he was in government and rolled Tony Abbott to get the job. So that's, that's different. But yeah, Anthony Albanese falls into that category. And here's another one for you. When you think about the campaign that was run against him, that he's you know inexperienced and hasn't run a finance portfolio, yada, yada, that was run by Scott Morrison, Anthony Albanese is the most parliamentary experienced prime minister to take over the office since World War II, even more so than someone like John Howard, for example, because of course Howard came in in 96, having entered parliament, I think in 74, uh, and he'd been treasurer through the, through the Fraser years. But that's still him, you know, him getting the prime ministership after 22 years in parliament, whereas Albanese got in in 96, and you know, here he is getting it in 2022, 26 years later. He's the most experienced person to take on the prime ministership in terms of parliamentary experience since World War II, and he's the oldest opposition leader to win an election from, you know, to take over the prime ministership in our political history. Two things that you wouldn't necessarily assume. Yes, I, I saw some of that experience on show in Question Time when he was trying to get pinged at one stage for some comments that Alana McTiernan had made in Western Australia, which was, uh, you know, embarrassing potentially to the Labour, uh, you know, to, to the government. And he slipped it very easily, he said, I'm responsible for what happens in this chamber or something. He just kind of looked at them like, you know, is that the best you've got? So he's not going to stumble into too many bear traps. He knows that. Yeah. And, and it's funny, isn't it? Because he, he, okay, he is, you know, the oldest uh, and the most experienced in, in those two categories that I've talked about. But that's not to suggest that he's some fuddy-duddy either. I mean, you know, he's, he's, he's a factional lefty within the Labor Party. He's very progressive, much more progressive than some of the, you know, sort of 30-somethings on the other side of the parliamentary chamber when it comes to his social values, for example. So he's got experience, but going with that experience isn't innate conservatism, but it's a, a level of sort of, if you like, caution in terms of conservatism 
that probably isn't a bad thing at this point in the political cycle. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, interesting to do the deep dive for the book. Uh, the book Call of Victory, it's coming out soon. I've got no doubt in time for Father's Day. <laughs> Give us your assessment of the week in Parliament. Question time. I, I mean, I, th- I thought the government looked stable and steady. I thought the opposition was interesting. Peter Dutton was not uh, ranting, but he was certainly, you know, if you like, playing the hard man role and, and using some pretty inflammatory rhetoric at times. They went after the government around the abolition of the ABCC. Now, I'm not exactly sure that that is a vote winner for the coalition. I mean, they're talking about union thuggery and on work sites. They're talking about why abolish a body like the ABCC, which is, you know, on the metrics that were being quoted, at least in question time, doing a, a reasonable job in terms of prosecutions and fines and all the rest of it. Now, it doesn't matter where the truth lies on this. I just don't think it's a vote winner for the coalition to be going in that direction. It's about securing the base, though, isn't it? It's about saying to the base and to the donors, we're with you on this and we're not going to let you go. Which is interesting in and of itself, though, right? Because Peter Dutton is no natural fan of big business. Uh, He's more interested in small and medium-sized businesses with, with some of his sort of political rhetoric early on as well. But yes, you're right. This also appeals to big business, but it appeals to the liberal base as well, ideologically, when it comes to the trade union movement. There's certainly a sense amongst a lot of liberals that for too many years, they've been shy on this front, even though they did bring the ABCC back under Turnbull and they introduced it previously under under Howard, and they're now fighting for it and saying they'll bring it back if they ever get back into government. But really, uh, you know, the Liberal Party, in the wake of the defeat in 07 around work choices, hasn't been seen to be particularly bullish on workplace relations. So it's interesting that that is the direction that Peter Dutton has leaned into. From the government's perspective, they're focused, understandably, on the economy, but they're also doing a lot of things in other spaces. I mean, we've had the legislation for the 43% emissions reduction target tabled in Parliament. We've had the legislation tabled uh, to be able to have uh, paid domestic violence leave, as was promised on the campaign trail. And we've had uh, them table uh, a host of other things as well including abolition of the uh, welfare card. I'm getting the, the terminology of that wrong. Uh, the debit card, that's it. So they, you know, that, um, you know, that, that is all what they said they would do. So they're, they're walking hue and chewing gum at the same time would probably be the way that I would put it. Well, one person who wasn't there to uh, watch this display of walking and chewing at the same time, of course, is the former Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. I'll get your views on that. We might take just a quick break. Welcome back. This is The Professor and the Hack. I'm the Hack, Hugh Rimmington, National Affairs Editor at Channel 10, and our political editor, Peter Van Onselen, is uh, with me. And, Peter, we had John Howard there at Parliament this week for the resumption of of Parliament, but we didn't have another former Liberal Prime Minister who just happens to still be a bloody (laughs) member of Parliament. That's Scott Morrison, because he's off cashing in his... um, his value, I suppose, on the international speaker's circuit mm. in Asia. What do you make of that? He said he was going to stick around Parliament to be the member for Cook. When Parliament resumes, he's the member for Honshu or wherever this meeting was. Is that fair play or, or is it complete contempt for Parliament and his own electorate? Uh, optically, it's contempt. Uh, the only caveat that I would put on that is that if what he says is true, and, and I always have a caveat about that because Scott Morrison is and long has been loose with the truth, but he says that this was lined up before the parliamentary calendar was issued. Now, 
that is not necessarily a bulletproof excuse for him not being there, but it is an excuse. Well, you're allowed to cancel, aren't you? You, you say, sorry, double booked. Of course. I have a constitutional kind of imperative to be in the parliament as a federally elected member. Yep. Uh, you know, and people who are organising these talk fests understand that people, for a whole bunch of reasons, speakers have to drop out for one reason or another. It's not as if, you know, the dialogue and understanding of of, of Western civilization is going to fall on a heap because Scott Morris hasn't turned up to give a speech. <laughs> Here's what offends me about it, because I'm an institutional conservative. I believe that if we're going to hold a nation together and hold the people together, you have to believe that the institutions matter, the courts, the separation of church and state, the separation of powers, the whole kind of thing, and parliament matters. And given he particularly said, he could have said on election, I'm sorry, I've lost the election, I accept the outcome, the proper thing for me to do is to is to retire as the member for Cook and go about my business and there'll be a by-election in due course, that's fine. Full credit, let him do it, even if the by-election hadn't yet been held. But to say, no, no, you know, nothing gives me more pride than to continue as the member for Cook and then not turn up to work, I think, is disgraceful, contemptuous of the institution. Yeah, look, I I mean, I'm also an institutional conservative and I would have preferred to see him there and and I prefer not to see even just something as simple as pairings, frankly, when it comes to votes and all the rest of it so that MPs can go to functions in the building or functions off-site. That's how institutionally conservative I am. So I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not providing a full throated defence of Scott Morrison here. I'm just simply making a point. I can't even believe I'm sort of semi-defending him. <laughs> you have had a holiday, Peter. I'm just, I'm just making the point that if it was pre-arranged, that is a partial excuse. Let me put it that way. If it wasn't pre-arranged and he just went and did it, then it's absolutely contemptuous. I think it's partially contemptuous. Uh, once you're in the program, it's it's sitting there. You're a former prime minister, and and I think this is this is no defence actually, but I suspect this is part of his motive for not cancelling it. My understanding is that it was a paid gig, so uh, I suspect, and and if anything, that puts me more in your camp than in in the defending him camp. Let me be clear, but I suspect that also speaks a little bit to his motive not to cancel, if that is in fact accurate. He's being paid right now. He's being paid by the taxpayer for one job. That is to be the member for Cook. But you know what's going on? Like the only reason that he's still in the parliament, in my view at least, is because he doesn't get the generous superannuation scheme that previous prime ministers have. And in fact, that Anthony Albanese will, because he entered parliament before the change to that uh, from Mark Latham's era of 2004, when he you know, cajoled John Howard into changing it. So for anyone who entered parliament from 2004 at that election onwards, they don't get the old-fashioned annuated superannuation scheme, and that includes Scott Morrison. So what they do instead, and what appears to be the case, is that they continue to take the money, they don't turn up to Parliament, or they turn up when it damn well pleases them, and in the meantime, they're either making cash on the side, yep. or alternatively, they're spruiking themselves around for their next gig. And as soon as they've landed their next well-cushioned gig, then they can say, oh, you know, I think that it's fair that I step aside, and it's been a great honour serving the people of Cook, that is to say, having the Australian taxpayers, fund this job search and side gig, side hustle existence, I'm not sure that's dignified. And I'm not sure that it's, I can understand it on a human level. I can understand, you know, the impulse to do it. Well, it's, 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 not, it's not dignified. It's actually one of the reasons why I'm in favour of the old-fashioned super scheme continuing at least for former prime ministers. Maybe not for backbenchers, maybe not even for ministers, 
but certainly for former prime ministers. I don't like the idea that a former prime minister might be making a monetary call just to sort of slob around in the parliament for a little longer while they work out where their next money comes from and need to some extent to think about where their next dollars come from as opposed to not need to. You know, you look at Julia Gillard. I mean, Kevin Rudd's not short of a buck. Uh, Malcolm Turnbull doesn't get the generous super scheme either, but he's also not short of a buck. But Julia Gillard is, is a better example. Uh, you know, maybe Tony Abbott as well. You know, they, they can know that they're getting, I think it's somewhere between, depending on length of service, somewhere between 60 and 75% of their prime ministerial salary that they get for the rest of their lives annually. They, they don't have to go searching for money, therefore. Whereas Scott Morrison, yeah, I mean, I'm not defending it, but he's got two kids in private school. They're still young. Uh, his wife doesn't work. He's in his mid-50s. As far as he's concerned, he, he's trying to lock down money. Now, this is the next more interesting question, Hugh. The question is, how's he going to do that? Who would put him on a board? Who would make him, give him an executive job? Yeah, I mean, there'll be some people that will, but ultimately that's not where the money is to be made for Scott Morrison when he does finally leave parliament. Where the money is to be made, it would seem, is him hitting the speaker's tour, not just like what he's doing abroad in Tokyo, uh, if that is a paid gig, but also uh, hitting the evangelical speaking tour, I would suggest, going through the Bible Belt of the USA as an evangelical former national leader, one of the only ones ever. And I, I can imagine, having heard him at Margaret Court's uh, church opening over in WA that he spoke at, that that is something that he will do with gusto, and it will be controversial. Now, the other thing which made money for Paul Keating and for Bob Hawke after they had office was to become what they call a door opener for business, particularly into China, using the cachet of being the former prime minister, into Asia, but, but very much into China. Who's Scott Morrison going to open doors for? I mean, he can't even open doors for his own party, much less the new government. <laughs> well, this is, a, this is a very real point, is that uh, I don't think he's going to get that opportunity to, to do that. The, the times with China are different. Uh, the way in which he's perceived by China, a difference. You know, it's, it is interesting. Those other guys did go and use that cachet quite lucratively. What do you think about if he goes down the evangelical speaking tour that I'm talking about, though? Oh, well, good luck to him if he wants to do it. There's money in the US. Uh, I saw an article about this saying that his difficulty being is that if you go on that Pentecostal speaking tour business, they have some incredibly uh, charismatic, that's, that's the trick, that's a whole key to the success of evangel evangelical religious traditions is that these are, are speakers who hold the room in the palm of their hand, et cetera, et cetera. And Scott Morrison's not that guy. So after they've gone, yes, he's a Christian, he's one of us, he was a former prime minister, but he's still not that exciting. And, you know, he, he'll do okay out of it, I suppose. But I, 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 can't, I can't see him moving to the US to kind of do tent revivals you know, around the southwest and, and south, isn't it? No, no, but he doesn't need to do much of this, does he? I mean, he, he only needs to do a dozen speaking gigs a year to pull a prime ministerial salary or close enough there too, depending on how he selects them. Yeah. Well, let's leave Scott Morrison to the side just for a moment and get on to the next item of difficulty for the government, I guess, and you mentioned it before. This is this 43% emissions target, which is going to be legislated in law, according to Albanese, if you can get it through the Senate. And of course, he cannot do it without having the coalition on side. That ain't going to happen. Or alternatively, he needs the Green plus one other senator. Everyone looks to David Pocock of uh, the former Wallaby, the ACT senator. But the Greens are playing somewhat hardball. Do you think this gets through? Do you think it matters if it doesn't? Well, look, I think it ultimately will get through. Uh, that will depend, as you say, on, on how hardball the Greens ultimately play it. 
in the end. I, I suspect in the end it gets through rather than not because uh, somewhat surprisingly to me, I'm, I'm getting the impression that Adam Bant is not prepared to do a Bob Brown on that front like what happened with the Greens back then when it came to the ETS under Kevin Rudd. Does it matter though? It's different this time because this is much more symbolic to have it legislated than significant would be the way I'd put it. It's not insignificant because, you know, the symbolism matters, I suppose, but whether, whether it's legislated or not doesn't change the, the game in terms of uh, how we do get to 43% if we indeed get there by 2030. You know, you could legislate any number. Chris Bowen doesn't go to jail if he doesn't get there as the, as the relevant climate change minister. Uh, there aren't practical policy implications to hitting the mark or not hitting the mark if it's legislated or not. It's just simply government embarrassment, I suppose, would be the way to put it. But that, 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 you know, that's about it. I mean, look, yes, it, it probably helps as a piece of symbolism give business a sense of certainty about the target as well. And it makes it harder, again, as a piece of symbolism for it to be unwound by an incoming government uh, if there is one before 2030. But ultimately, this is much more about just sending that message rather than you know, any practical effect, because the government can get on with it without the legislation. Yeah, I mean, one of the problems that the Greens point out is that it's fine to have this 43% target that says nowhere near enough, it should be 75%. And they say, look, if, if that's a domestic target, we're still opening up these gas fields. You know, there's still 21 coal mine, new mines or extensions of existing mines in the Hunter Valley alone that are in the pipeline. So their argument is, is that if we're still exporting at such a non huge level, what do these things mean? We're still essentially doing our bit for the warming of the planet. And of course, there's this heightened demand for energy all around the world, as we know, because of Ukraine and, and other factors. And one of the figures, it's a little bit technical, but if you look at the major economic parameters that were handed out in the statement by um, the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, nominal GDP is set to rise in this financial year by 11%. It's the strongest number anywhere. And that is a function of the high prices we're getting for iron ore, for sure, but also for coal and gas. So the only good news, the only good news in the economic figures that we've got is that we're making a shit ton of money out of oil and gas. And that answers your question, doesn't it? <laughs> and coal. Sorry, not, not oil and gold. I mean, uh, sorry, I mean, it's chiefly coal and gas is, is what I, I should say. Yeah. Yes, and, and the coal price is the one that, that is interesting because, you know, the, these two things do come into conflict to some extent. You know, the, the government's desire on the economic front uh, to, to maintain growth and all the rest of it so that they can have a good economic message to, to sell themselves to the voters on in three years' time versus the fact that they also have, you know, needs and wants when it comes to climate change action. But the two things do come at loggerheads to some extent when it comes to, certainly when it comes to coal exports. Once upon a time, the assumption was that that wouldn't be the case because the theory was that coal prices were just tanking and therefore the commercial viability of it would tank as well. But it's gone in the other direction now. It is funny, isn't it? Because it does go to what is really the fundamental difficulty that we all face, because there is no question the warming planet is a threat to us all. And yet, if you look at energy demand around the world, we can see what happens when you know supplies get interrupted out of, uh, out of Russia, prices go up to the roof, economic pain goes, goes around the world. So if these, we're not remotely near the position where renewables, particularly globally, are able to take up this, this slack and deliver the need that we've got. And we're not going fast enough. We should have started decades ago, as soon as, you know, back in 1992, and they had the first global summit on this. 
if we'd got going there, we'd be in a far better position than we are now. But where we are now is a difficult, it's a difficult task because there's going to be a kind of an energy hunger that for some time is still only going to be filled by by fossil fuels. And that's going to create, you know, debate around nuclear, even though for Australia it's too expensive and, and, and that's been modelled. It's also going to create debate around gas, which I think is a more legitimate debate that that whether we like it or not, because as you say, you know, coal is so dirty, you know, renewables will take a little while to ramp up. Gas is a halfway house that I think is is viable, but there's a lot of contestation around how we you know, work in that space. And, and, you know, and then the fracking is its own issue, right? So this will be a totemic area of debate and how the Labor Party juxtaposition themselves between the, their, their left flank and their right flank on it, as per the environment and the economy, well, that's that's a difficult balancing act for them. We've almost got to go just before you do. The voice is up there. Some questions about whether it would have bipartisan support through the House. A very strong speech from the Northern Territory uh, incoming politician, Jacinta Price, making a clear statement that she doesn't like it. It's hard to imagine the coalition is going to support this almost over the wishes of such a prominent Indigenous member of its own party room. Does it get up? Well, yeah, what sits in sort of contested to that is that Julian Lease has been made the Shadow Attorney General and he's been an outspoken advocate for a voice to Parliament. So that leads me to think maybe he is the conduit to the halfway house, that they can support it, and then it becomes whether or not the government goes for what the opposition says is the terms by which they would support it. In other words, he, he, he talks about sort of the structuring of what it might look like in a way that Peter Dutton gets on board with, Jacinta Price doesn't have a problem with. But does Anthony Albanese have a problem with that? Do the Greens have a problem with that? Does that blow the debate up? Does the Indigenous community, most importantly, have a problem with that to the extent that there's any homogeneity there? So look, it's it's certainly not going to be a tick and flick by the sounds of it from where the opposition are coming from. And that complicates things. And much to do with the wording of the referendum. Peter Van Onselen. So nice to have you back. Great to be back. The book is called The Victory, coming to a bookstore near you. It'll be great. Great to talk to you. Thanks, Matt. Talk soon. You have been listening to The Professor and the Hack, a Network 10 podcast. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Thanks for listening.